Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Here we are. It is Island Idols. It is season number three. It is episode number 27. Admittedly, this is a number of days after Christmas, and yet, Dad, here we are preparing to discuss Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory. Uh, we want to know, uh, well, first, I should say, Meli Kaliki Maha. Meli Kaliki Maha, that means Merry Christmas. Right. So, but uh, now it's New Year, so it's Happy New Year. That's true, Happy New Year. I don't know how to say that in Hawaiian. How was Hanukkah, Christmas, and New Year's for you on Oahu? Well, we are still in a pandemic, and so all I can say is I'm marooned on a desert island, but I try to manage to keep my sanity, do a little exercise, meet some people. We, I can go to a coffee shop and, you know, congregate outside a bit, and that's uh, makes me feel like I'm not a, I'm not a hamster in a, in a cage. I guess the good news is that in Hawaii, you can still be outside. It's not too cold. You can... You don't have to be inside where people are spreading their germs to one another. I exercise down at the university near the track, so that's good. That's uh, a nice change of pace. The weather is still good. You got my Hanukkah slash Christmas present. I did. Thank you. You're welcome. It was pretty great. But um, tomorrow is a, a pretty big day. I know you don't, don't really want to talk about it, but uh, tomorrow, now we're recording on January 1st, 2021. And tomorrow is uh, somebody's birthday. Yes. Well, I wrote about this. Having a birthday on January 2nd is a little odd because, kind you know, downer, huh? it's always the day after New, the day after New Year's, but it's also two weeks of, uh, of riot in, the, in normal times. And so by the time January 2nd comes around, nobody wants to do anything but, you know, kick back and go back to work and anything. But, you know... What can we say? It's a, it's it's the same birthday. I share a birthday with John Hope Franklin, the great uh, historian of uh, Black history and and uh, great professor of. Well, how about uh, that? How about that? And he had a birth. His birthday was January second, which I only found about because he in his uh, he gave a talk at the University of Hawaii years some years ago after long after they'd been retired, and he had a biography. He'd written a memoir. And of course, I got a copy, and he signed it. And then I discovered it was his birthday. January second was his birthday, so that's great. Well, the good news is you celebrate a birthday with John Hope Franklin. The bad news is people typically give you one present for Christmas and your birthday. Ah, uh, that's okay. Presents are not exactly a big thing in it. But actually, uh, you know, we have something on its way to you. We're tracking it online. But um, it's a big ocean between you and us. And uh, frankly, there's a whole continent between you and us. And it hasn't gotten there yet, although we ordered it quite a while ago. But when it gets to you, we hope that you enjoy it and uh, that it brings you uh, a little bit of pleasure on, uh, well, shortly after your birthday. You haven't gotten it yet, right, Dad? No, I haven't. And I think your sister's also told me she sent me something, but it hasn't arrived yet. 
Well, okay. Well, happy belated birthday. Dad, a number of days ago, before we get to uh, Truman Capote's uh, A Christmas Memory, tell me, when you were teaching, was censorship of texts, of classic texts, uh, an issue? Did it, did, it did it arise at all in your academic career, the topic of censorship? No, not, not really. No. Of course, I did tell the story in Stone Mother when I was in, in junior high school of having a substitute teacher and we had to bring books in to read to keep us occupied. And I was reading a book by Thorne Smith and the teacher wanted to see what we were reading. And she asked us to come up and show her the books and she didn't like what I was reading. And so she confiscated my book. I always resented that. So you were censored as a kid. Right. Well, the, the author that you were reading. Well, I bring it up because there was an, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that came out uh, a few days ago now. It's, it's, uh, it's called Even Homer Gets Mobbed. And uh, Megan Cox Gurdon, the author of this op-ed, makes the point that there's a, a movement. I don't know how big the movement is, but it's big enough to get the attention of the Wall Street Journal a movement called Disrupt Texts. That's the hashtag. And uh, the, uh, the opening paragraph says, a sustained effort is underway to deny children access to literature. Under the slogan, Disrupt Texts, critical theory ideologues, school teachers, and Twitter agitators are purging and propagandizing against classic texts, everything from Homer to F. Scott Fitzgerald, to Dr. Seuss. And the article goes on to note that there was a English high school teacher in Massachusetts who managed to have uh, the Odyssey kicked out of the high school curriculum. And uh, you're chuckling. It seems uh, utterly ridiculous. And yet, you know, it's happening. Do you think this is just uh, uh, too small to really even be worthy of notice? Or do you think this is actually a... Uh, a trend in the academy. Well, I hope it's not a trend. I say it's too small to notice, but as you say, a Wall Street Journal reporter managed to get an article out of it. So mm -hmm. it must be more than just a single teacher. But it seems a little odd to me. I mean, I'm used to the fact that uh, Huckleberry Finn is always a problematic text because of the uh, language. You know, teachers don't want to expose students to uh, some to a text that has the N word written out, and so they uh, that classic American novel is often problematic. I'm also aware of the fact that uh, Salinger's *A Catcher in the Rye* has often been one of the books listed on the top uh, comes up high in the list of books banned, which I've never understood. I don't know what why that book is always you know, being uh, censored in uh, high school classrooms. Wasn't there like foul language and I guess what people... I can't would... remember. I mean, it's so long since I read it, but I can't remember any foul language in the book, but maybe there's a word or two. But and then the general, the general observation is, uh, on my part, is what are these teachers, presumably the teachers, what are they afraid of? I mean, it, it was my view that, I mean, if, if young people are reading... I mean, adults should be happy. I mean, reading, you know, you know, improves your vocabulary, assuming you're reading a book that's got words in it that you don't know. It expands your horizons. And uh, it's better than so many other things that people are doing. With well, I think what they're, uh, I mean, look, the last thing I want to do is defend 
you know, so for example, one of the one of the fiction writers who is behind this movement, she wrote absolving Shakespeare of responsibility by mentioning that he lived at a time when hate-ridden sentiments prevailed, risks sending a subliminal message that academic excellence outweighs hateful rhetoric. So I think what they're afraid of is lionizing individuals because of the quality of their art if their art is inundated with anti-Semitism or racism. I think that I assume that's what's behind it. They don't want to do anything to prop up an author who had such, you know, uh, you know, hateful racist sentiments in his writing or her writing. Most of the great books don't have, I would sure say, obviously hateful, you know, sentiments. Mm-hmm. I mean, they exhibit, you know, marks of, you know, uh, racism. They exhibit marks of anti-Semitism. They exhibit marks of sexism. That's no question about it. But I mean, you know, you're not talking about outright propaganda. And if mm-hmm. you look at all great art, I mean, the people that are making it are not saints. And if you're going to try to create a world of uh, art, you know, created by saints, you know, you're going to have a very small world to look at. I mean, the other thing is, it seems to me, is uh, it devalues and it diminishes children and young people. It it makes, it treats them as if they're so, they're so ignorant and they're so stupid that they're not able to learn and grow from the process of education. And presumably critically evaluate what they're reading. You know, that's that's something one has to learn to do. But just because you're presented with the classic text doesn't mean that text or the author of that text is above scrutiny. I'm not saying they're above scrutiny. I mean, I I went to school. No, I know. I know. I know you aren't. I know you aren't. But I'm just saying I, that- I went to school and I studied writers who were anti-Semitic. Right. And, you know, they were lionized in that day. But, you know, you know, it didn't mean that I became, I, you know, I admired their anti-Semitism. Right. The, the point, the, the general point is, if you, if you try to obliterate the past, you're going to create a generation of illiterates. I mean, is that what you want? I guess the question is, how did you, when you were reading some of these texts that, ha- that were written by, had anti-Semitic sentiments in them, how did you appreciate the text when you had so much disdain for that particular point of view of the author? Maybe you, say, maybe you can say I compartmentalized. I mean, I remember when I was reading Hemingway, uh, and The Sun Also Rises, and he has a very negative picture of a Jewish uh, a figure early in the novel. And it's clearly, you know, anti-Semitic. I mean... I didn't put the book down. I mean, I tried to figure in my mind, why is Hemingway mm-hmm. taking this attitude? But I kept up with the book and, and the story and the novel. And uh, I just, it, it's a way of keeping things in, in suspension. Right. I mean, you're not, you're not trying to find some kind of absolute uh, level at which, you know, a book is admired, and uh, or a book is rejected because of its uh, its uh, statements. I mean, you ca- you have to be able to keep something in suspension. 
I'm interested in the conversation because, um, well, for a number of reasons, but uh, it was a couple of years ago that I was speaking to a small group of pastors one evening, and I'd given a, I'd given a short lecture on the Protestant Reformation. This was when we were remembering, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the nailing of Martin Luther's uh, theses to the door in Wittenberg. And so I was giving this talk on the Reformation, and uh, because at that particular time there were also conversations about race and racism in the air, during the Q&A time, an African-American pastor asked me the question, what do I do? Uh, how do I wrestle with the reality that some of the theologians that we respect very much as pastors or Christians, how do I wrestle with the fact that so many of them were racist? Later in his life, Martin Luther had some outrageous anti-Semitic comments. Mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan Edwards, who is America's greatest theologian, of course, he was British at the time, but claimed uh, by America, and uh, he, uh, he had a slave. Well, we could talk about the founding fathers, but in this particular context, it was in fact that these were giants of, of Christian theology. Uh, working from a Bible that I would argue uh, argued against the very views that they held. And all I knew to say to this uh, pastor at the time was, to use an allusion from the Bible, um, at one sense, we're all sheep and we're all prone to follow our teachers. And uh, we have to learn to be to critically evaluate even those who are teaching us. Otherwise, we'll continue to repeat the mistakes of those who have gone before us which is something that, uh, that, that theologians have done yeah. as well. Uh, I also think it has to do with how egregious some of the, uh, the attitudes are. I mean, Martin Luther, for what I understand, was pretty egregious, pretty uh, virulently anti-Semitic. And so that would, that would compromise a person's ability to, uh, or, or willingness or in dealing with his theology and his influence. Mm -hmm. I mean, a writer like Henry Adams in America was far more anti-Semitic than, you know, was common at the time. You know, Henry James was, but, you know, Henry James, you know, didn't seem to bother me that much because, it, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was an aspect of his experience and I, I never paid too much uh, credence to it. But somebody like... Uh, Henry Adams, I'd be a little more suspicious of. So there's no answer, really. There's no, there's no answer. Right. I mean, eliminating it is not an answer. And, you know, just bowing down before it is not an answer. You just have to, you have to learn to be critically uh, aware and to some degree tolerant, tolerant of, you know, people who lived in different times and whose attitudes are not exactly, right. you know, uh, acceptable today. To me, the great irony is that suppose this subset of teachers had their way and curriculums across America were scoured for any classics that had any objectionable material. They were taken off the shelves. They were taken out of the libraries. They were taken out of the public consciousness. One wonders if that's really going to do, do its job. In other words, you're not going to get rid of racism by taking away texts written by authors who struggled with or who made racist statements. The, the best way to work against racism is to identify racism where you see it, whether it's in classic works of literature or pop culture, and address it and, and point out the flaws and the weakness and the, the inhumane speech and learn from the past. 
And so I think that this this disrupt text movement is actually in the long run. It's I don't think it's going to succeed. But it were it to succeed, I think it would actually have the opposite effect. I think it would make people close-minded rather than able to critically evaluate various ideas. I think a great book for young people to read is something by Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit Four Five One, in which he's a writer. You I've know, not read that. He's a writer who you know really fought all his life for freedom of expression and freedom of the press, and the uh, and the idea that people should be allowed to read books and they should not censor them. And uh, you have to have, as I say, I think you have to give more. I think people are smarter than adults often give them credit for being. And uh, left to their own devices, they do, they do better by reading than by not reading. Well, suffice it to say that as we spend the season digesting a number of short stories, uh, we are going to probably encounter some objectionable material. And uh, and our uh, we're going to discuss it and talk about it and not throw it away. But Dad, to change gears for a moment, the author that we want to think about for uh, the remainder of our time together was a man by the name of Truman Capote, a man uh, born in 1924. He died in 1984. And the last time we spoke, you mentioned him as one of the most gifted authors of his generation. That was great praise. I don't know if it was you who said this or if I read this, that some have also argued that that even some of his potential was was untapped, uh, that he he didn't he he was so naturally gifted that he didn't refine his skills. I don't know if you said that or where I heard that. Uh, he's most famous to my mind for Breakfast at Tiffany's because of the movie. And then I've heard a lot about In Cold Blood that non-fictional fictional account where he, he it seems like he was something of an investigative journalist writing an account of uh, a couple murderers. What are your initial thoughts about this, uh, this giant of the 20th century? He wasn't a giant because I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he developed, uh, you know, a very serious drug habit. He became very alcoholic. And he died, you know, really relatively young. I think he was just 60 years old. So, mm -hmm, I mean, you can mm -hmm. say that a lot of the talent that he had was wasted, but that's another story. I mean, when I said he's one of the most gifted, I, I, I don't think it's natural, but he certainly developed very early mm -hmm. and he developed a pro style that was as, uh, as clean and as, uh, as, uh, I don't want to say pure, but as 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 uh, simple and as expressive as you could get. I mean, and he was a, he was a bit of a snob. I mean, you know, Jack Kerouac, who uh, published uh, wrote on the road and became a was became a huge success. And uh, you know, Capote was a little bit jealous of that, so he said, "That's not writing; that's just typing." You know. <laughs> because he was because because uh, Capaldi was a very meticulous writer, and he uh, he revised and uh, he said everything about writing involved work, and uh, it involved you know an ear punctuation was important because you punctuated according to the way you wanted the characters to speak, and you didn't worry about grammar. You 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 followed the punctuation that was the rhythm of the character's voice, and that was what you had to follow. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he was a very conscious craftsman. Uh, 
I mean, I, I mean, I think he, you know, he he did a disservice. He he was disrespectful, or sort of he was dissing Kerouac. Kerouac was much more disciplined than Capote gave him credit for being, but that's beside the point. But Dad, in the nineteen sixties and seventies, uh, Truman Capote was something of a of a of a celebrity. I saw an interview. Johnny Carson had him on his show, I think, in 1972, to discuss his book *In Cold Blood*, and it was a fascinating interview. But one of the things that was obvious was here was a an author, and by that time he had written a number of screenplays. But he was really a national celebrity. Can you describe something of the role he played in sort of America's uh, celebrity culture? I mean, how did people view Truman Capote? Carson, of course, was a great figure in late night television. And I remember growing up with Carson and he would have authors on his on his uh, show. I mean, as a matter of course, Truman Capote happened to be a good friend of Carson's wife at the time, Joanne Carson. So that was one of the reasons he was a kind of a regular guest there. Okay, Uh, And actually, he remained friends with Joanne Carson after Joanne and Johnny Carson were divorced. And he, he stayed at her home in in California, but Capoli wrote screenplays. We he wrote one screenplay, "Beat the Devil," which was fantastic and was a fantastic movie. And it starred Humphrey Bogart and Peter Ustinov, and uh, I think Jennifer Jones. And it became something of a cult a cult film. And uh, he wrote the uh, television plays, but he loved the limelight. And uh, I, I would compare him in literature with uh, Andy Warhol in uh, visual art. I mean, Warhol was also an artist who enjoyed uh, publicity and enjoyed attention. And Capote was the same kind of uh, attention-getting figure in the, uh, for, art, for, for writing that uh, Warhol was for painting. And they actually crossed paths and actually uh, Warhol, you know, commissioned Capoli to write a regular column for one of Warhol's magazines at the time. Uh, So there was, uh, and of course, they were both homosexual and there was a tension-grabbing aspect to their their publicity as well, to their, their, shall we say, to their lifestyles. Capote capitalized on that and exploited it. And then in the late 60s, I don't know whether it was 68 or 69, he commissioned uh, a ball, a black and white ball that was one of the, uh, that was actually a historic event. To get invited to Capote's black and white ball was uh, a mark of really having arrived. And uh, uh, that's now a historic. Uh, I'm sure you could probably find it in in Wikipedia under the title uh, "The Black and White Ball." Yeah, this may be unrelated to Capote, but what struck me as I watched that interview on the the, the late night show with Johnny Carson was how they, they were talking about capital punishment, and it must have been at least five minutes of this interview was very sober. Uh, there was no humor. They were describing uh, uh, an execution. In, uh, in, in, in detail, what it was like to be there, to see it. They were having a deep philosophical conversation about this, and it, it was like nothing that uh, I'm accustomed to seeing on, on late-night television. And I haven't watched late-night television for quite a while, but when I did, 
it was joke after joke after joke. This was quite different. Was that just part of the era that, that TV could handle that? In Cold Blood was probably the book that Capote's fame rested on and probably that his mm -hmm. fame will, will re, you know, he'll be remembered for mainly. I mean, of all of all of his works, mm -hmm. because uh, this was a book in which not only did he take a true crime, an actual, you know, horrific uh, act that took place in Kansas, the murder of a family of four, but uh, he he reported it and he presented it in a narrative so that it read as if it were a novel. And Capaldi then came up with the expression, the nonfiction novel. This was a form of writing that became basically it was popularized by Capaldi and, you know, formed a new form of journalism, the new journalism. Other people took other people participated in like Thomas Wolfe. I mean, even to some degree, Joan Didion would be part of this group of writers who were trying to take real life events and report them in a way that would make them as as a viscerally experienced by the reader as the experience they have from reading fiction. At the time, what did you think about that genre? Well, I mean, Tom Wolfe was great. I mean, uh, what is it? The, the candy-colored Kool-Aid, uh, I, I never can get the title right. Uh, Tom Wolfe's essays about uh, Ken Casey. But Dad, it makes, me, it makes me think about your memoir, because I remember when we were talking about you getting your memoir published. I suppose part of me expected that you might do the same thing with your own memoir. You've got these memories, you've got these facts, but to sort of bring it to life, you're going to, um, you're going to, I don't I want to say make up dialogue, but you're going to like put the pieces together so it's a free flowing story. And you would have nothing to do with that. No, I did try to write it as a narrative that would be uh, say, readable. readable and, you know. But accurate, 100% accurate. But accurate, yes. I didn't make anything up. I, I can't say that's the case with Capote and In Cold Blood. I mean, it's been some of the stuff has been questioned there. But uh, by and large, it's probably a pretty good presentation of the, of the story that he was telling. And... I, I think, I don't know if I told you this story, but, you know, when I, I was a big fan of Albert Camus when I was a, an adolescent, a young man in high school, and I had read, a, read a Camus' long discussion of capital punishment in which he opposed capital punishment, and then I became an opponent of capital punishment in my head because of Camus. And when I read In Cold Blood some years later, it was so vivid mm -hmm. and... Capote made the case for capital punishment at the end. I can't. I, I'm. I remember finishing that book and thinking to myself, "Am I going to follow Capote's view that capital punishment is a justifiable act, or should I stick with my view from Camus that under no circumstances mm -hmm. should capital punishment be a kind of uh, act that a civilized society, you know, uh, commits?" So that's how. That's how important that book was, and that's how, uh, that's what made Capote such a national figure. Well, back in, was it 1969 that your short story anthology came out? Right. Is that right? In 1969, really just a, f a few years, I think three years after Capote's short story, Christmas Memory, came out, you included it 
in your anthology. Correct. Why? Uh, yeah. How did how did that happen? That this particular story you decided would be in this anthology. To answer that question, I'm trying to figure a way to answer without seeming immodest. Well, because to, in one, I mean, you you picked a winner. Yes. I mean, it's a it's a popular story. Short story anthologies publishes one short story anthologies, which are going to be used as text for you in, for college classrooms. Okay. Publishers want you to include stories that are already known by the teachers who are going to select the texts. Okay. If you have stories in there by writers who they teachers might recognize, but they don't know the stories, they're not going to choose the text. So from the publisher's point of view, the more stories you have by write by okay. the more stories that are called old chestnuts that everybody knows them, the better the better the publisher likes it. But on the other hand, as a young assistant professor, I wanted to do something a little different. I wanted to find stories that were not so well known, although the writers might have been known. I wanted to create a more, we would say, diverse collection of stories. And my the the second edition was even more broadly diverse than the first edition. But I went looking for for writers that I could recognize as being, you know, worthy, and then looking through all their all their stories and and making a selection on them. So most of the, all the selections by and large come from my own individual decision as to what I wanted to include. Mm -hmm. Well, I was introduced to A Christmas Memory about 25 years ago, not through you. I hadn't, you know, read the, your anthology at that time, but, uh, I had some friends, uh, in DC and, uh, one, uh, one evening around Christmas time, uh, one of them uh, decided to to pick it up and and we read it together and it was a you know fun evening uh, reading this short story and then later along when I spent a few years teaching at a little homeschool cooperative in Kentucky I taught English and uh, every year I would read to this high school class a Christmas memory and uh, I have grown to to love it over the years and I thought. This time of year, again, we, we didn't make it uh, for Christmas, but I thought right. this time of year, it'd be a, a, nice, a nice thing to, to pause and to think about this memory that uh, Truman Capote has of a Christmas when he was about seven years old. In the short story, his name is Buddy. He's in a rural uh, Louisiana town, and his, his best friend is uh, his, uh, his cousin, who is probably 50, 55 years his senior. She appears to be a woman with special needs. Uh, she, she's childlike. And uh, she doesn't just sort of um, try to get into his world. You get the sense as you read that, that she is in his world. And it's, uh, the, the writing is it's incredible. Punchy, simple straightforward, descriptive, almost like, uh, almost like nothing I've ever read. Well, I mean, the story, the story has, as you say, it's become an old chestnut. I mean, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it was turned into a, uh, I think a television, uh, show and it's probably not, I don't want to say it's unique among, uh, Capote's stories, but it's, uh, it's mo more more autobiographical, and uh, it is more reflective and nostalgic and uh, reminiscent, and it's a retrospective narrative because you have an older narrator mm -hmm. looking back at 
what it was like mm-hmm. to be a boy in this period. And now, of course, that is gone. And so that's, that's, that's an element that gives it uh, the story a certain kind of poignancy and keeps it from being completely sentimental. So again, Dad, this, the story is about uh, Buddy and his relationship with his old, much, much older cousin. Uh, it's it's Christmas time. And one of the things that they do every year is uh, they they save up money and uh, they they make fruitcakes. And uh, by the way, Dad, the fruitcake capital of the world is in Georgia. You might not know that, but it's Claxton, Georgia is the fruitcake capital of the world. Do so people still eat fruitcakes? If you want to visit, I don't think anybody eats it, but I, I just happen to know that the capital is here. So Buddy and his cousin, they, they make these, these, these fruitcakes. And I want to, I want to, re- and so he's, 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 he's reminiscing about this. And to give, to give us just a sense, uh, a taste of the writing of Capote, uh, let me read this, this uh, section from A Christmas Memory. It's about what, uh, what he calls the fruitcake fund. Capote writes, but one way and another, we do each year accumulate Christmas savings, a fruitcake fund. These monies we keep hidden in an ancient bead purse under a loose board, under the floor, under a chamber pot, under my friend's bed. The purse is seldom removed from this safe location except to make a deposit or, as happens every Saturday, a withdrawal. For on Saturdays, I am allowed 10 cents to go to the picture show. My friend has never been to a picture show, nor does she intend to. I'd rather hear you tell the story, buddy. That way I can imagine it more. Besides, a person my age shouldn't squander their eyes. When the Lord comes, let me see him clear. In addition to having never seen a movie, she has never eaten in a restaurant, traveled more than five miles from home, received or sent a telegram, read anything except funny papers in the Bible, worn cosmetics, cursed, wished someone harm, told a lie on purpose, let a hungry dog go hungry. Here are a few things she has done, does do. Killed with a hoe the biggest rattlesnake ever seen in this country, 16 rattles. Dip snuff, secretly. Tame hummingbirds, just try it. Till they balance on her finger. Tell ghost stories, we both believe in ghosts, so tingling they chill you in July. Talk to herself, take walks in the rain, grow the prettiest japonicas in town, know the recipe for every short of old-time Indian cure, including a magical wart remover. I love that because you get a taste not only of his writing, but the way he introduces his cousin is just uh, entertaining and beautiful. Yeah, well, the details are remarkable. I mean, this, you know, in a, in a way, a story like this is filled with Christmas mm-hmm. just, in the, just in the details that he uses to describe everything around them, the nature, you know, what they collect, even, even something like, you know, the coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was thinking about this because I was thinking about the coins and I was still, I'm still old enough to remember collecting coins and trying to remember what is it when he said a half a dollar could, you know, hold down a man's eyes. And I'm thinking... What was a half a dollar like? And you know, it was had to be before the Kennedy half dollars. It had to be, you know, at least the Benjamin Franklin half dollar. I couldn't remember. Oh, Dad, you're so that, that is so good. Let me read a little bit more because you remember that 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 passage about the coins, and it's so much fun. Let me just give give you a little bit more. 
Now with supper finished, we retire to the room to a faraway part of the house where my friend sleeps in a scrap quilt covered iron bed, painted rose pink, her favorite color. Silently wallowing the pleasures of conspiracy, we take the bead purse from its secret place and spill its contents on the scrap quilt. Dollar bills tightly rolled in green as maybuds, somber 50 cent pieces, heavy enough to weight a dead man's eyes. Lovely dimes, the liveliest coin, the one that really jingles. Nickels and quarters worn smooth as creek pebbles, but mostly a hateful heap of bitter odored pennies. Last summer, others in the house contracted to pay us a penny for every 25 flies we killed. Oh, the carnage of August. The flies flew to heaven. Yeah. There's a little bit of murder in A Christmas Memory, the murder of the flies. Well, I think it's a shame that young people, you know, they don't get a chance to, you know, play with coins. My father, my father used to collect uh, Liberty Silver dollars, and I remember having some of them, you know. I'm not sure I could locate them anymore, but I, I used to enjoy piling up those Liberty Silver dollars. You know, Capoli has the, you know, and he's also able to, in a story like this, what makes it so poignant is you have a very young child and you have a much older person who have a sympathetic connection. Now, it's true the older person mm -hmm. may not seem to be exactly grown up, doesn't fit in the grown up mm -hmm. world, but they too form a connection. And uh, that's something that, that makes it so poignant. And, and, you know, and he also suggests that these people who are these outliers, just as the child is an outlier, the older person is an outlier. They have qualities and skills right. that often the modern world that the adults don't have. I mean, you, des you describe what she can do, all the things that she doesn't do, but what she can do. And a lot of people who are very modern and up to date can't do any of those things. So right. it's, a way of, it's a way of marking intelligence apart from the ordinary ways in, pe in which people are intelligent. You know, Capote didn't go to college. Oh, really? He insisted he didn't have to go to college. If he wanted to be a writer, he was going to be a writer. He didn't need to go to college to learn to be a writer. That's something that's, I think, worth remembering, too. A lot of writers, you don't have to go to college to get an MBA to be a writer. Right. You know, Hemingway didn't go to college either. As the story goes on, Dad, they, um, Buddy and his cousin, they cut down a Christmas tree together. They, um, but they both secretly make christmas gifts for one another there's a sweet account of they both wind up making kites like they did last year but they they love one another so much there's this longing that they would be able to give one another bigger and and better gifts but of course and they they decorate the tree just a, a beautiful recollection but at the end buddy is sent away to some boarding school or something like that and uh and eventually he he he, he finds out that his his cousin dies and um, dad, the every time I read it, I know it's going to happen. And I, I don't tend to, to tear up very often, but I tear up most every time I read this story. And my question for you is one that I don't know that anyone can really answer uh, because writing is such an art. But I'm, I'm wondering how you would try to answer the question, how did Capote do it? How in such a short amount of time does he arrest the reader's affection for these characters? Well, I think, you know, you have, uh, it's so clear that uh, the sense of loss is so poignant. You know, you have an older person 
who now doesn't need Buddy anymore. Mm -hmm. The older person has a life far from that rural, almost backwoods world that he describes in A Christmas Memory. But yet the connection was so strong and so uh, galvanizing in a way Mm -hmm. that it can't be really extirpated. And the loss can't be salved by knowing that, well, this is old people have to die and all of us have to die because nothing has really replaced it. So every Christmas when, when fruitcake weather comes along, that young boy who's now a man looks to the sky to see if the kites might be flying somewhere. That, you know, that, that sense of what, mm-hmm. what's missing in my life that I can't be recovered and it's in a way it's painful to remember it but at the, at the same time it's uh it's part of who that person is and so that older person telling the story has really been formed by that relationship he had as a young boy with his distant cousin and uh you know everybody everybody most people can recognize that and i think i was thinking about a story by John Steinbeck of Mice and Men. Nobody can read that story as a young person and not really tear up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a sense of loss and a sense, in this case, of death, which almost seems necessitated, but still, you know, brings a tear to the eye. It, it's unfairness, and and it's uh, and it and what and what's left in its wake is just that pain and that remembrance of uh, something that can't be repaired or recovered. Dad, sometimes when I'm watching a movie and um, I, I get a little bit choked up, I think, I probably think a little bit too much about it, but sometimes I wonder if I've sort of been manipulated. I mean, if I let sort of the music and maybe a, a tired theme, um, have I let it get the better of me? You know, they have these, they have these experts in Hollywood who just kind of know how to pull the levers and dial the switches. I think we give these people much more credit than uh, I think they deserve. What really they're tapping into, people are tapping into their own experiences mm-hmm. when they read and when they watch. And the stories are pretty, I mean, the stories are consistent. While the story's about, about falling in love, dying, you know, mm-hmm. achieving. The stories are all there, but people's experiences are all individual. And their responses to those stories are really what creates the emotion. In other words, it, it might be difficult to to know why someone responds emotionally to a story. It though though the story is connected to it. Your your point is there's a lot going on in, in the reader's heart that's going to make him or her resonate at a deep level with what he's reading or watching. Yes, and I think it changes in the reader in the course of the reader's life. You know, something that you might have mm-hmm. choked up at at 15, you might not do at 35, and then suddenly at 60 you discover, vice versa. you know, you're choking up again. And then sometimes mm-hmm. you may be choking up at things that seem to you utterly ridiculous, but you can't help it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a psychologist, so I can't really speak to the the process, but I can certainly say that it it uh, it exists certainly with art and people that that put themselves in the position of experiencing art are going to experience these different emotions and these different uh, 
the discoveries in themselves about what moves them and what doesn't move them, which is why, getting back to your original point about that silly article about the disrupting teachers, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it does a disservice to people, to children and to people growing up and trying to enter the world and mature and learn to love and learn to work by really, you know, putting a clamp on their intelligence and on their, on their imagination mm -hmm. and thinking mm -hmm. that, you know, unless I give them the truth, which I only, I'm the only one who knows, they will go out into the world and do terrible things. To give Capote his due, one of the things that I thought as I reflected on A Christmas Memory was somehow he managed to be sentimental without being sentimental. He never he never tells the reader what to feel. I never felt, I, I understand a lot of it's going on inside of me, but I, I, nonetheless, I never felt manipulated. I never felt like I was being forced along a certain path. It was like he held loosely to the memory. He plainly described it, but he did it in such a gentle, pure way that when it was all said and done, I felt like, I had walked a mile in both of their shoes, both a seven-year-old boy and a 60-year-old childish woman. From the point of view of art, this is, this is Capote following Hemingway, you see. Okay. He is not giving you the adjectives and the adverbs that tell you how you should feel about these experiences. That's why this story is different from A Christmas Carol. In A Christmas Carol, Dickens lets you know that Scrooge has repented, Scrooge has grown, mm -hmm. and this is, you know, he tells you all the ways in which you're supposed to respond and feel. Right. And in Capote, of course, writing 150 years later, that's, you know, art has, art has uh, changed. Mm -hmm. It's not minimal because it's not minimal like a Hemingway story is minimal because it's filled with detail in order, in order to capture a rich you know, uh, shall we say, a fruitful uh, picture. Mm -hmm. But it is never expressive in terms of telling the reader how you're supposed to feel about these experiences. Dad, let me, um, let me highlight, by way of observation, a couple themes, which, you know, you know by now that I like to do that. I like to see if I can find a theme, something that the author might be trying to, to drive home into the heart of the reader. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, it's the theme that I walked away with. Let me uh, make these observations. One of them is a theme that I very much like, and the other is a theme that I would say I'm, I'm critical of, not critical in the sense of uh, I dispute the fact that it should be in the story, because I think uh, Capote's being very honest to his memory and to his his way of looking at the world, but it's, it's not, um, it's, you know, I have a different, I have a different opinion of the world than Capote does in this area. But the first theme that I thought was really beautiful and, and worth talking about was the fact that when you put the short story down and Buddy's cousin dies, you're left with the impression that we've lost something important. And you, you were getting that at this a little bit earlier by talking about what she had to offer and the things that she could do that no one else could do. But at face value, this was a woman who couldn't take care of herself, who was sort of constantly getting into trouble. You get the sense that her relatives saw her as a burden that they, they needed to bear. And um, But when you're done with the story and she's no longer here, you, you have the sense that the, the world is not better off. 
that someone that the world looks down upon is actually someone really wonderful. And I thought that was one of the reasons why it uh, it just sort of puts a, a lump in your throat because that that's just a beautiful theme that what the world prizes isn't always what should be prized. Well, of course, I mean it, it expresses itself in her in her connection with Buddy. I mean, you know, here's a boy; he's apparently got family, he's got parents, mm-hmm. but you know, they're always presented as you know, like in a children's book, the grown-ups who are over always out there to make sure that they're towing the you know the uh, party line, mark, you know. Yeah. And here's a woman who really treats him as a child. And because she's childlike herself, mm-hmm. and so the connection is is uh, is wonderful. And I mean, that's you know, she doesn't have to have done anything. She if she, if she did nothing, she else she helped form and you know and uh, had an effect, an influence on this young person who later became a man, which is what you're talking about, right? Dad, my second observation has to do, of course, with the religious context, and it's not the it's not the foreground at all of the story. It's just the background. Uh, Capote is reminiscing about his life, and um, and it's a life in in the deep South. It's a Baptist life, mm-hmm. and uh, it, again, it's not it's not the main part of the story, but it's there. And as a Baptist pastor, I can't help but notice how Christianity is presented. Uh, it's presented as this version of it is presented as something. The word that comes to my mind is starchy, <laughs> legalistic, lacking fun or humor, and uh, it's it, it it comes in the ways that uh, Sunday school is described as sort of the last place anyone would want to go, and uh, I think frankly it's uh, probably an accurate description of the type of religion that Capote presumably was exposed to as a child, a, um, a legalistic, you know, Christianity is about uh, doing the right thing at the right time and not, not causing any trouble. And uh, what Buddy's cousin realizes at the very, not at the end of her life, but at the end of the story, she, she reaches the conclusion that uh, God isn't finally sort of out there to reckon with you on the day of judgment. She concludes that that God is in the here and the now, in the everyday things of life. And I don't know if that's Capote's opinion. I mean, I, I kind of presumed it was. But let me read you this paragraph, because even though I disagree with the theology, it's a beautiful way of describing uh, the conclusion that she reached about life. So this is uh, you talked about the kites flying. I think this is uh, I think this is around that time that the kites went into the air. Buddy's cousin cries out, "My, how foolish I am!" My friend cries, suddenly alert, like a woman remembering too late she has biscuits in the oven. You know what I've always thought? She asks in a tone of discovery and not smiling at me, but a point beyond. I've always thought that a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the Lord. And I imagine that when he came, it would be like looking at a Baptist window, pretty as colored glass with the sun pouring through, such a shine you don't know it's getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think of that shine taking away all the spooky feeling. But I'll wager it never happens. 
I'll wager at the very end, a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself, that things as they are, her hand circles in a gesture that gathers clouds and kites and grass and queenie pawing earth over her bone, just what they've always seen was seeing him. As for me, I could leave the world with today in my eyes. Of course, that's a beautiful passage. And of course, that's the epiphany in the story. I mean, that's what Joyce would call uh, an epiphany. You know, it is, it, it is the point at which the story makes its central, its central point, its central image. I could lead today. I could lead the world with today in my arms. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, you don't have to say it's pantheism. You don't have to say it's transcendentalism. You don't have to give it a big a big uh, word like that. But it is a sense that this is the world and to enjoy the world and take the world for what it is, is really to have the world and to know what it means to be alive and to be, you know, a human being. I think, I think one, of the, one of the hardest things about being a pastor who teaches the Bible, which I take to be the Old and the New Testament, is helping people understand not just the theology and not just how the theology might experience or might uh, influence or inform one's ethics, but to help people actually come to a genuine experience of God. And that's one of the hardest things to do, because at the end of the day, all the Christian catechisms, you know, they say God is spirit. He, he can't be seen. And so here, you know, you can understand why a woman who is, uh, you know, been taught all her life that, you know, God is going to come again and you need to be ready for that day when you see the Lord. And even there's that illusion at the beginning of the story where she says she can't go to the movie theater because she wants to make sure her eyes are strong enough to see the Lord on the day of his coming. You can appreciate, I can appreciate the need to help people understand that there is an earthiness to religion and to Christianity in, in particular. There is a, a day by dayness to the faith. And in that sense, I think that there's a, there really is a, a truth in, in what she's saying. And I think the story is appropriately entitled A Christmas Memory, because of course, what have Christians been celebrating at Christmas since it started is the incarnation, the, the fleshiness of God, God who took on flesh. Uh, so ironically, Christmas is all about God entering time and space and uh, to come and to save and to be with humanity. And of course, though I believe that God is coming again, and I don't know if Buddy's cousin was denying that or not. I simply want to have my cake and eat it too. God is in the here and now. He is present, uh, omnipresent, as the theologians like to say. But we also live in a world that's going to uh, reach a conclusion, a denouement, where God reveals himself a second time. So I appreciate the fact that you, you say this is the, 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 the main emphasis that Capote wanted to drive home. And it's certainly one that I noticed. It's not anti-religious. I mean, I think, you know, it's not anti-religious in any respect. I mean, his portrayal of the elders, you know, and the, you know, the Baptist religion is just a description of the way people grow up and what they live with. Mm -hmm. And then the, this woman's discovery with the boy, 
the two of them, you know, have this great connection and they're out there flying their kites, which they've made for each other. And they say, this is, this is, you know, the best thing. This is the best thing in the world. This is, their relationship is the best thing that she has and that he has with her. And uh, there's a touch of, you know, I don't want to say this is like t a touch of O. Henry because I think it's better than O. Henry. But, you know, the gift of the Magi, that Christmas story when uh, the two people, they're so poor, they're so much in love, and they have no money to buy each other gifts. And the woman has this gorgeous hair, and the man has this beautiful watch. And, and he, he surprises you buy a brush here to buy him a watch fob, and he, you know. <laughs> he gets a, a comb know, or a brush so, for her to comb her hair. Right. So there's a poignancy. Christmas, Christmas stories also often bring out the best in writers, when they want to try to be, you know, you know, express what, uh, you know, Charles Dickens did when he recreated Christmas with the Christmas Carol. Yeah. And, and that, that can touch on, on, on the sentimental. Uh, I recently saw uh, a movie on Disney plus dad, you probably don't subscribe to Disney plus, but uh, uh, we do, we've got a family full of kids and uh, Disney plus released a movie uh, called, uh, I think the, the it's called soul. It's a, a cute, I think it's a computer animated movie about this, uh, about this man that is spending all of his life. He's a middle-aged man who's always wanted to be a, a jazz pianist and kind of make it. And uh, he's actually just a, a middle school band teacher. But one day he gets a, he gets a break and he is uh, invited to be in this uh, great quartet somewhere. I think it's in Brooklyn. And lo and behold, he, uh, he dies but uh it's a it's a cartoon and it's uh so he he goes to some middle ground between here and the afterlife and he comes back with a lost soul uh, who is who's waiting to start a life long story short uh he he realizes that uh his dream of being the the world's best cons or uh, jazz you know pianist it just wasn't all it was cracked up to be. He got a taste of it before the movie was over, but he learned that life is really to be lived in the here and the now, and we're to, we're to appreciate the little things, you know, day by day. And so that was the movie Soul that just came out in 2020. Honestly, Dad, it made me think of uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and how Tolstoy ends with Levin just deciding he's got to stop worrying so much and just kind of live in the present. And so that is a, a theme that, that crops up again and again and again. And I think we see it in Buddy's cousin looking around and just appreciating nature, you know, for, for what it is. So I think that's I think that's a truth. I think it's I think theology has a lot more to teach us than that about God. But I, I, I find some wisdom in that basic idea. Good. You and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, well, let's not go too far. Okay. Well, Dad, there, there, there we go. Uh, Truman Capote, a Christmas memory. So, for those of you who are listening, we hope you have a happy new year, Dad. It's a, a, always a delight to talk to you. I hope you can get off that tiny island really soon, and uh, I, I hope to see you before too long. All right. Okay. Take care, Aaron. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>